I'm Scott Wetley. Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Since I started this podcast, I have focused on things that are part of my life. Superheroes, horror and movies. This made starting the podcast easier, but now I want to push myself and take on some subjects of which I don't have much knowledge. When thinking about where to start, I worked through a list of things that I wanted to know more about. This has led to a long list of topics that I will be looking into in the future, and probably become shows down the line. The subjects include everything from the mainstream, such as the 80s cartoon boom, to the more obscure, like the Wald Newton universe. In the end, I landed on a subject about a group of people that have been influencing and inspiring musicians and music lovers for decades. After a little research, I find myself wanting to know more about the origins, lives and legacies of two of the most important musical icons of the 20th century. The King himself, Elvis Presley, and the Fab Four, the Beatles. Each from very different backgrounds and creating vastly different sounds, but both establishing a foundation and legacy that would change the direction of pop music and influence musicians even today. Over the next two shows, I will be providing an overview of these two pop culture giants with some insight into and context of their history and interviews with people that love them and share a passion for them. In the first part, we will travel back to Liverpool, England in the early 60s and more specifically, the Cavern Club, where the Beatles were discovered by Brian Epstein. Although, that is jumping ahead a bit. Let's go back a few more years. In the late 1950s, a version of the group was coming together made up of John Lennon, Paul McCartney and a very young George Harrison. They were playing gigs whenever they could get a drummer. They were joined by their first semi-permanent drummer Pete Best in 1960 when they were booked for a three-month residency in Hamburg, Germany. The gig went well for a while until the group was found to be working a second gig at the same time. This resulted in them losing both gigs and the underage Harrison being reported to the authorities. Over the next couple of years, they did sporadic gigs in Britain and back in Hamburg, as well as acting as a backing band for Polydor Records, who contracted them for a year. During this period, they were also performing more frequently at the Cavern Club and were a popular mainstay of the Mersey Beat scene. It was during one of these performances that they were watched by a local record store owner, Brian Epstein. Over the next couple of months, he got to know the band and was appointed their manager in January 1962. With Epstein on board, they worked to get out of their Hamburg and Polydor contracts. and In early 1962, the group was awarded a new contract with EMI Records. During the first sessions, the band agreed to drop Pete Best, and they were joined by Ringo Starr. Through these sessions they recorded several songs, Love Me Do, Please Please Me, and P.S. I Love You. Of these, Love Me Do was released as the band's first single and reached number 17 in the UK charts. If 1962 saw the band come together, 1963 saw them become a sensation. With guidance from Epstein, they established a unified and more professional look on stage. They also recorded their debut LP, Please Please Me, in Abbey Road. It is agreed by all involved that the first album was rushed, with a little thought going into the songwriting process other than creating catchy tunes. 
This paid off as the album reached number one in most charts. It was described as having a fresh and vibrant feel that can be attributed to its rushed and intense creation. This was soon followed by their second album, With The Beatles, which also reached number one. They were on a roll of success that would mean the majority of their albums from that point on would reach the top of the charts. It was also in this album cover blurb that they were first referred to as the Fabulous Foursome, which was quickly abbreviated to the now iconic Fab Four. In the UK and parts of Europe, they had made it. They were established and the fan base was growing massively. In the US, however, the story was a little more complicated. Due to a number of royalty and ownership rights, as well as a management shake-up at the record companies that Epstein had approached, they had very little exposure the other side of the pond. Tired of having to work through other people, Epstein took charge of the situation in late 1963 and arranged for a $40,000 advertising campaign and got the support of a DJ called Carol James. Exposure on one show translated into further demand and appearances on other stations, causing a wave of exposure and demand across the entire US. In reaction, Capitol Records, the US branch of EMI Records, released I Want to Hold Your Hand in December 1963. It was at number one by the January 1964. The Fab Four arrived in New York in mid-Feb 1964 to a roaring crowd of fans. During this US tour, they would experience a series of events that mirrored Elvis's first TV experience, which says more about America's fear of rock and roll than it does about the individuals involved. They appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show to a huge, record-breaking audience. However, the following day there was a rash of negative critical reviews. The critics may not have been won over, but the fans were in love and the live shows were attended by huge, screaming crowds. Beatlemania was born. Wanting to ride the tsunami of success, United Artists approached the band with a three-film deal, planning on making the money from the soundtrack sales. The first of these films, A Hard Day's Night, was directed by Richard Lester, director of Superman 2 and 3. The film was a critical and financial success, as was the accompanying soundtrack. Some even suggest that this is the first time the true spirit and sound of the band is captured. And not wanting to let success wane, the band went on an intense international touring schedule. Each show attended by between 10 and 20,000 fans, packing the venues to bursting. Their sound as a pop band struck a chord with the growing youth culture, but a meeting in the summer of 1964 would instigate a change of direction for at least one member of the band. In August, the four were introduced to Bob Dylan. At the time, the fan base of each was considered to be worlds apart. The Beatles appealing to the teeny bopper youth market with pop music and a rock and roll feel, while Dylan's folk stylings and political leanings appealed to college students and the politically active. This meeting, however, had an impact on John Lennon, who started imitating Dylan to a degree and encouraging the other members, and possibly their audience, to grow up a little. This is further demonstrated in the next studio album, Beatles for Sale, which due to extensive touring and engagements lacked original material. However, what there was sounded different. The Lennon-McCartney partnership was developing, 
This developing maturity and style continued to grow through 1965 and 66, influenced in no small part to the introduction of LSD and other drugs. This culminated in the album Rubber Soul, and this album marked a massive step away from the typical pop music that had started them off. They were trying and succeeding in pushing themselves musically and lyrically. They may have been grown artistically, but 1966 saw the boys have a run of unfortunate media mishaps. While touring in the Philippines, Epstein declined a request for them to appear at the presidential palace. It turns out that declining such an invite results in riots and attempted attacks. The band barely made it out of the country. This was soon followed by a much greater faux pas during an interview that was printed in an American magazine called Datebook. During the interview, John Lennon stated, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was alright, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. Religious groups across America and parts of Europe reacted with anger and protests to the comment. Their albums were removed from shops and radio stations took them from the rotation. While this reduced their exposure, it did not reduce the fervour of their fans. While on tour in the US in 1966, they knew that during the shows no one could hear the music over the screaming of the crowds. They had made such progress with their music that they had become bored with the routine of the live shows without the music having an impact. It was decided that this would be their last live tour and they would focus on their music. And focus they did. Back in the studio they wanted to push their experimental progression and include as many influences as possible. An alleged 700 hours of studio time later and the result was Sgt Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band which was released in June 1967. Almost immediately the lyrics and cover of the band started to be studied for meaning both open and hidden. This academic study continues today. As McCartney said at the time, we write songs, we know what we mean by them, but in a week someone else is saying something about it, and you can't deny it. You put your own meaning at your own level to our songs. The band was now at its zenith, artistically and commercially but would receive a blow that would act as a catalyst to, to the band's eventual breakup. In August 1967, Brian Epstein passed away following a drug overdose. This left the band rudderless and vulnerable. Epstein had been the linchpin for the four members of the band, acting as a calming influence and taking control of the business elements. His death was a great blow for the band. Removing his influence allowed cracks in the foundations of the group to appear. In order to ensure the family would have some privacy from the media and the prying fans, the Beatles did not attend his funeral. Over the next 18 months, three albums were released. Magical Mystery Tour, Yellow Submarine and The White Album. Each contained more material highlighting the artistic growth of not just the group, but the individuals involved. During the studio sessions of The White Album, this individual growth led to open division between the four. Without the arbitration and guidance of Epstein, the Fab Four's personalities started to clash. This was soon followed by the band's first negatively received output, the Magical Mystery Tour. The associated soundtrack was well received, but the actual film received critical and fan bashing. 
both consider it to be a slightly conceited bag of rubbish. This was balanced out by the much more positive response to the following up film and soundtrack, Yellow Submarine. The imbalance of these two films highlighted the lack of direction in the band. Looking for guidance, the Fab Four turned to the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, travelling to India for a planned three-month stay. Ringo left within two weeks, shortly followed by Paul McCartney. John Lennon and George Harrison stayed on longer, hoping to find something deeper, but both returned a few weeks later. Still without a leader, they returned to the studio to try and work through the troubles. Unfortunately, this didn't work. By this stage, each of the guys had taken an interest in different musical avenues, which in some cases were in direct conflict. Lennon started to consider McCartney's contributions populist rubbish. He further frustrated the recordings by bringing his new interest to the sessions, avant-garde artist Yoko Ono. Such divisive interests and tastes led to an album that each of the four agree was not a true Beatles album. They may have all contributed, but each song was an individual effort. The Beatles, also referred to as The White Album, was not received with the enthusiasm of previous albums. Many considered it unfocused and indulgent. By the start of 1969, the band was in disarray, and it was becoming more and more obvious that the time in the recording studio for the White Album had marked the start of the band coming apart. The group's issues continued during the creation and recording of both Let It Be and Abbey Road. On a number of occasions, one or more of the four abandoned the sessions or laid down demands regarding how they believed the album should be created. Despite the eventual outputs being well regarded, the stress and tension had brought the band to an impasse. A final nail was slammed home during the production of these albums as the band argued over who should manage the band's legal and financial matters. Lennon and Harrison wanted the former manager of the Rolling Stones, Alan Klein. McCartney demanded Lee and John Eastman. When no agreement could be reached, both were appointed in financial and legal supporting roles. This however did not resolve the issue and further conflict grew, resulting in McCartney refusing to sign a new management contract with Klein. He was overruled by the other members. A new contract was not enough to save them though, and on September 20th 1969, John Lennon announced that he was leaving the band. This was not publicly announced until all completed material was released. Once the albums had been released, Paul McCartney filed a legal action that dissolved the band and led to years of further legal conflict. However, as far as the public and fans were concerned, the Beatles were no longer together. That may have been the end of the band, but it was not the end of the Beatles. Even now, over 40 years after the band's dissolution, there are legions of dedicated fans around the world that love and celebrate the band's music and style. While I've provided a brief history of the Beatles' active years, to get a better understanding of what people love about them, I contacted the British Beatles fan club. More specifically, Ernie Sutton, the fan club's treasurer and long-time Beatles devotee. I interviewed him recently, and he has some very interesting things to say about the fan club, its history, and his love of the Beatles. So the fan club then was created out of the Beatles, the London Beatles fan club. Uh, so were you a part of that, the original London scene? I wasn't a part of the original. 
original London fan club that was formed in the 80s. Oh, wow, well, okay. Um, um, our membership secretary, Terry Bloxham, was, was a part of that. And it was initially run by a chap called Richard Porter, who runs a, a Beatles coffee shop and does Beatles tours these days. In London? Um, or in, is that in London or in, Liverpool? That's in London, yes. Oh, OK. And um, eventually that folded. Mm. And in, in 2000, our editor, Pete Nash, decided to resurrect uh, the London Beatles fan club uh, with a magazine. Mm -hmm. And we were very kindly helped out by a chap called Howard Cohen, who runs the London Beatles store in Baker Street. And he helped us fund the first few magazines until we were up and running. And then within three years, it, it grew to such a degree that it turned into the British Beatles fan club. Wow. And I suddenly became a member around mm. that time because I used to purchase the old Beatles monthly magazines. Oh, okay. Which, so you were, um, yeah. Which uh, stopped printing around 2003. I was looking for something else, and I came across the British Beatles fan club. Oh, okay. So that's how I got involved with that. And then eventually it got bigger and bigger, and it needed more people to do different jobs. Yeah. So that's how I ended up being the treasurer. Okay. So, yeah, so it's, gone uh, from, there we go. so it's gone from strength to strength then, really? It's gone from strength to strength, yeah. Okay, brilliant. And with... And with social media as well, we've got lots of people that like us on Facebook and Twitter and all of that stuff, but but we still do a magazine because we've still got a, a very healthy uh, fan base for that. Yes. No, I think, I think uh, it's it sounds daft, you know, like you, I hear people talk a lot about digital and things these days, but I, I have to admit, I love a good fanzine. Uh, I'm still very, yeah. you know, I'm the book kind of person. I love the tactile nature of it. So that's that's really good. I love that. Um, so, 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 what, so before you were sort of joining the fan club, and obviously you, you had the monthly magazine, what was your first exposure to the Beatles then? It, it was when I was very young, when I was around four or five years old. My mum used to have a transistor radio in the kitchen, mm -hmm. and um, she always had it on while she did housework or cooking, because in, in those days... Um, most of most of the women, most of the wives were housewives. They, yeah. they didn't go out to work. Uh, so there was always this music going on around me. And uh, my mum kind of sensed that I liked the Beatles because uh, I kind of stood up and listened when a Beatles record came on. <laughs> Your ears pricked and, up. Uh, yeah, and then um, around uh, 1964... Um, my parents made a kind of pact with me that if I did well at school, <laughs> in a in a term, <laughs> I could have I could have the next single that came out. So that that's how I got my first single in 1964, and uh, then my collection and interest in them just grew and grew and grew. Okay, but oh, so so the incentive was there to do well at school. Um, the incentive was to do well at school. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so you see your collection grew. So you know, obviously, with a lot of these things, it starts. Um, with the easy stuff, like say the records, the albums, that sort of thing. But well, so, what's yeah. your what does your collection include then now at the moment? Well, it includes the obvious things: the records, yeah. um, CDs these days, books, um, magazines, uh, autographs, uh, toy. That I've still got a toy guitar from. 1964 <laughs> that my grandmother bought me and it's still got the strings on it and it still plays fantastic um uh photographs hanging on the wall um 
just just loads of it really. Yeah. So so from a you know so from a memorabilia um, and, and taking part kind of view. Did, I, hit, I see that you, you took part in the Take It Away video in 1982. I did, yes. And that was with uh, um, who was it? Paul, Paul McCartney. Ghost Star. Yeah. Was there? The, their two wives, Linda McCartney and Barbara Star. Yeah. Uh, as well as the Beatles producer George Martin. Oh wow! So is that is that the first time you'd met them, or was it? That was the first time I'd actually met them and shook hands with them. Mm. Yes, uh, which we were which we were allowed to do at the end, and because uh, we weren't allowed, we were actually part of an audience right. for a concert a concert scene in the video. Yes, yes, and okay, that's it. Yeah. And then at the end, we all got the chance to get autographs and say hello and. I think Ringo was a bit miffed because everyone kind of made a beeline towards Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to Ringo first, and I think he was quite chuffed. Mate, yeah, you made his day. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I've I've done my research and uh, onto the Beatles, trying to get, you know a bit more of an understanding, and I, I will admit that my knowledge is was you know um, more around sort of like I know the songs, I know the albums, but I didn't really know a great deal about the people, um, yeah. and. I didn't really know anything about their history, so really I saw that when when I started to look at their history from like you know the late fifties when they were they were coming together, and like yeah. you know, people seem to say nineteen sixty was their starting point. What? Uh, yeah. Is that what is that? Would you go? No. Would you disagree with that, or is that sort of the uh, kickoff point? Uh, it, it depends what you call the starting point. No, I mean, nineteen sixty was the time that they first started to go to Germany to mm. play. Uh, and John, Paul, and George were in place by then. Yeah. Um, but before that, in 1957, John and Paul were in a band called the Quarrymen, and it was only later that George joined. And uh, Ringo didn't join until about three months before their first record came out. Yes. So, uh, yeah. It, it, so a, a starting point. It, 1960 would be a good starting point because I think that was the time that. They went across to Germany and played the clubs in Hamburg and started to to gel as a band, really. Mm. So, I mean, that time in Germany seems really important because obviously, you know, on the road that sort of forms you as a band as a sort of a unit it gives you, makes you quite tight, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they were playing eight hours a night. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that is uh, a, that's a full day's work every night. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, so what? You know, and again, this is just my interpretation of sort of like what I've read and the history and that. So they were coming together, they were sort of to garner some level of success, but is it is it right to say that really their step up was when they came under Brian Epstein and he was able to um, get them a better contract? It was, yeah. Uh, the manager before them was a chap called Alan Williams and he'd arranged the trips to Germany mm. Um uh, along with some other Liverpool bands that he managed. Um, but when Brian came along, um, Brian was like this chap in a posh suit and, and everything, and um, he had contacts in London, so he was the one that came down to London to try and get them record deals. Um, and eventually he got them one at EMI after they'd been turned down by virtually everybody else. Um he managed to get a tape recording of them yeah. and he, he took that round to various record companies. Um, unfortunately, it was, a, it was a tape they did for Decca on uh, New Year's Day 1962 and it was 
it was pretty cold. Right, yeah. So, so it wasn't a brilliant recording he was taking round, but no. he, he did end up meeting George Martin, who didn't like apparently didn't like the music first. Right. So when he met the Beatles, when he met the Beatles, he liked them. Yeah. So he thought, yeah, I'll give them a chance and give them a go. Yeah, and obviously it rose from there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that seems to be, that's what I find really fascinating is that you know when you look at history, it's these little little things can you know can make such a big difference. So just meeting because Brian yeah. Epstein, um, he went he saw them on stage, didn't he? That was and he was determined to become their manager. Then I sort of. So, yeah. yeah. He he ran a record. He <clears throat> he. His parents owned a, a huge furniture store mm. in Liverpool, and Brian ran the records section. They had a little section of uh, records. Yeah. Brian ran ran that, and it was it was only one day when a chap came in and asked for a Beatles record mm. uh, that Brian Brian found out he suddenly didn't have it in stock, so he'd never heard of this band. Oh, okay. And and then he found out that they were playing just down the road at the Cavern Club. Yeah. And went, and went to see them there and met them afterwards. And that's how he hooked up with them initially. Okay, so I'll say it was very fortuitous then. Yeah, so that chap had not walked into that record shop. No, yeah, it'd be a very different record, story. be a different story, yeah. Yeah, okay. So they sort of, you know, they, they take off, they start to get success. And one of the interesting things I found about all the, um, the, the sort of 60s uh, music scene, and I said, you know, uh, Elvis did something similar. It was the, was the movies, you know, these these yeah. the, the jukebox musicals and stuff. So, yeah, was this a sort of a, you know, when I look at some of the others, it seems a bit more strategic, like they're doing it to broaden their uh, appeal. But the Beatles mm. look more like they're just having a laugh. <laughs> was it um, intentional? Yeah. Was it just sort of like for fun, something they could do? Well, when when they became really big in the in sixty four, and mm-hmm. they were touring the world. Um, they obviously couldn't go everywhere mm. uh, on the planet. So the idea of the first film was to put that out across the world so that uh, people okay. would have ac- to have access to them if they couldn't get to a concert or whatever. Mm. So that was the idea of the first film. And um, the first film was actually filmed in black and white because the producers wouldn't stump up the money for a colour film. Oh, really? Because they they kind of thought, oh, this is passing phase. The Beatles will a flash in the pan, in sort of thing. Yeah, a flash in the pan. They'll be gone in a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time they did their second one, um, they stumped up the money to do that in colour because they suddenly realised they were onto a good thing. I think. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, they do seem. You know, I watched uh, bits and pieces of all of them really to sort of see. You know how they mm. how they sort of fit together and. Um, they, they just they just seem to be having a really good time for the most part. I yeah. thought that was really interesting. They, they, they were very happy at that time. Yeah. Uh, you know, 64, 65, um, they were enjoying it. It was only, I think, 66 onwards. Mm. But it really, it really became, a, some of it became a bit of a drag for them, the, the touring and all the problems they had yeah. um, in, on the tours in 66. Was that um, when they stopped? Was that when they stopped touring? So sixty six. That's when they. St- they. That's when they stopped. Yeah. What caused that? They, well, they had. They were getting fed up with the fact that they couldn't be heard on stage, and that the fans were screaming all the time, and <laughs> and that they felt that people were just there to see them, and not listen. Yeah. Um, but they ended up going to. Uh, um, they did a tour uh, to Tokyo in Japan. Mm-hmm. 
and and played a place called the Budokan Hall in Tokyo. Okay, yeah. And they got, and they got a very hostile reception from some of the Japanese because uh, it was classed as a war memorial for the war dead. Oh. And they object they objected to the, uh, this long haired group turning up and playing there. Yeah. Um, and they went from there to the Philippines. And apparently, without their knowledge, they apparently snubbed the president. There was some invitation that they never got. Uh, so, okay. they, so they got bad press about snubbing the president. And then uh, John made his comment, well, John's comment came out that uh, the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Mm. Just, just at the time they were about to tour America, oh. which was the last tour they did so you've, you've insulted um, the japanese you've insulted the philippines and now you've insulted the american uh, bible belt <laughs> yeah and uh by the end of that tour they'd uh, all decided that that was it they weren't going to tour anymore mm. um and they 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 found homage in the studio after that mm. and were able to develop uh their sounds and be more creative that way yeah, it's interesting actually you say that because one of the things you know you about developing their sounds um, towards like the mid sixties and stuff. It, sort of put, like, it seems the group's growing like diversity in the mid sixties. You know, allowed them to create some really interesting songs. Um, you know, the, the sort of touches of the Indian music and the, but keeping it in with the pop and all the, yeah. mod- the more modern stuff. Yeah. You know, so that's all the influences. It makes them very diverse and obviously a bit more yeah. different to anything else out there. Uh, and, the, and the Beatles were instrumental in, uh, when, when they started to record, mm-hmm. they'd go to the studio and, and they'd be told by management, oh, you've got three hours and you've got to come out with two songs uh, or something like that. Yeah. So three hours was the limit and then they were out. Yeah. Um, but by the time they were doing Rubber Soul at the end of 65, the studios were letting them have ba- basically their own time that they wanted to create it because they knew that something good was going to come out of it. Mm. So from that, um, all the other groups of the time that were into the psychic, by the time they got to psychedelia, people like Pink Floyd, yeah, um, they were being given more studio time by the record companies. So the success and of that, the- and that, And that's why I think the music developed because the groups were being given that time to create yeah. rather than being told you've got X number of hours to do X number of songs. So it becomes less like a production line, and actually they're allowing these these you know these creative people to be creative. Create creative, yeah, exactly. Well, wow, so that's exactly. a real legacy to have. Then you know you're allowing to turn that corner. Yeah, yeah. To flip that over, though, um, you know, it seems sort of in that period, then that growing diversity in in tastes and. Uh, the objectives of what they wanted to do. Did that contribute to them sort of, you know, the breakup, the eventual breakup, or, you know, the, the, the differences between them? There are, there are a lot of things that contributed to the breakup. Um, mm. the, the first thing was Brian Epstein dying. Of course, in yeah. In 67. And they basically found themselves with kind of no leadership. Mm. Uh, and they'd stopped touring. So it was Paul that got them into kind of said look we look chaps we've got to do something here yeah so they went out they went out and made the magical mystery tour film which wasn't a great success when it came out mm. um but it's now regarded as, as an excellent film <laughs> um so by this time john and paul were, were writing separately anyway most of the time 
Um, and they went off to India for three months. Yeah. Um, I think Ringo came back after a week. Well, <laughs> <laughs> after about a month, and John and George stayed there for three months. Right. And by the time by the time they come back, they got enough material to do the White Album. Okay. But there but there were rows and everything else during that mm. because they'd come back with so many songs. George was unhappy that he wasn't getting enough of his songs on the albums. Uh, John didn't like the way Paul was creating songs. He didn't like songs like Obladi or Oblada. Yeah. And and Paul was getting a bit fed up because Yoko Ono by then was in the studio. So there were a lot of things that were contributing towards it. Um, but I think the main thing, by the time they did break up, um, I think that they'd come full circle. If you hear their last album, mm. it's very much a basic album, which is kind of going back to where they started. Yeah. Um, so they they basically done, I think, what they could, and they weren't developing anymore. Too much compromise so between everybody, sort of flattened it all out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, John, I mean, the classic one is uh, when Abbey Road came out, mm. um, John chose the songs for the first side, and Paul chose the songs for the second side. Right. They were that diverse. <laughs> right. That they, couldn't, they couldn't even agree on what was to go on the album <laughs> as a pair. <laughs> so, uh, could, do you think, if you know, Brian Epstein could have prevented this? Do you think if he was still around, they would have lasted a lot longer? Um, it, that's a difficult question to answer. Mm. Um, Brian would have been able to manage Apple for them which is the corporation they set up yeah. that lost a hell of a lot of money, which mm. is why uh, John, George and Ringo brought in a chap called Alan Klein right. that, Paul, that Paul disliked straight away. Um, but Brian could have run Apple. Yeah. Um, but having said that, at the time of Brian's death, um, the, he wasn't really needed that much by the Beatles because mm. they stopped touring. They were going into the studio. They were under George Martin's supervision, mm. and, Brian, and Brian was kind of left with nothing to do. Yeah, if, if you know what I mean. So Apple, I think, would have been good for Brian had yeah. he lived. Uh, but whether he would have kept them together or not, I, I actually doubt that very much because musically they were growing apart, and, yeah. and George, George in particular was flourishing as a songwriter. Mm. And I think he he was the one when they broke up that really developed the most initially. Mm. The freedom to be more creative again. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating. So, you know, I mean, looking at the uh, the, the the period of the time, you mentioned like the early sixties and stuff. That I mean, Britain at the time was um, a very very different place. You know, there was no social media. Yeah. There was no uh, TV. Was very limited, and you know the rest. So. It's understandable why they were so popular at the time. You know, they were obviously a breakaway yeah. from the norm. Why do you think they're they're they, they're still so popular? What what makes them have such a strong appeal, even like fifty well, years later? I, I think um, something else why they were popular in the early sixties was because I found when I was growing up that my parents liked them as well, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of think that that generation that were from my parents' time kind of lost a chunk of their childhood due yes. to the Second World War. Yeah. And the, the Beatles kind of gave them that back, mm. if you see what I mean, but a bit later in life when mm. they were like in their 20s or early 30s. Um, but I think the, 
today because they they still are influ influencing other artists. Other artists are covering their songs. Um, Paul is still touring. Mm. Um, and we, we certainly find in the fan club when Paul goes out on tour, the membership inquiry suddenly increased. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's kind of, it's like when the, the new movie came out this year, eight yes. days a week, we suddenly had a surge of new memberships because of that. <laughs> it's good, I mean, that's good. Uh, I mean, it shows that sort of like, you know, they, they still are popular, then they, you know, they, yeah. they, they're, they're uh, for every generation, really. I think, I, I think the main thing, uh, I think the main thing in their legacy will always be the music that they made. Yes. And um, their music is kind of everywhere. Mm. So if adults have something on in the house, then kids listen to it and hear it. And of course, children can pick up on the cartoon film Yellow Submarine or yeah. the song Yellow Submarine. And say, oh, well, who's that? And uh, you know, uh, I I just think it's the music that is so uh, profound, and it, it's a lot of it is timeless. Some of it is dated. Some yeah. of the early stuff is probably dated now, yeah. but um, certainly the later stuff um, <clears throat> certainly hasn't. And um, the, the music, I think, will always be the thing. No, that, I agree. Um, that's yeah. I think that's a really good point. I think they are so entrenched in in british pop culture that yeah you know they will always be you know there people every generation will be exposed to them in, in such a positive way yeah. i suppose yeah i mean i mean the people even talk about them in schools now yeah yeah i mean i've seen them on school posters with like timelines and mm. and you get to the 60s and there's what's happened in the 60s and there's always a picture of the beatles in there yeah and uh, even when you pick up books and magazines from the time, um, the Beatles are very predominant in a lot of the books about the sixties. Oh yeah, I mean they they, def they defined an era. Um, defined it, yeah. I mean when you yeah, I mean every every film set in the sixties, you're going to get a Beatles song or yeah, yeah, and the look yeah. and the, the suits, the hair and everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. they, they they are quintessentially British. Very much so. Yes. Okay, that's brilliant. That's been fascinating. Um, right. Final question then. Yeah. W what's your favourite album? Favourite album? Oh, yeah. Now, favourite albums of mine change from time to hmm. time. Uh, my favourite song hasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, my favourite song is Strawberry Fields. Excellent song. If I, had, if I had to pick an album now, I would probably pick Revolver. Okay, yeah. Because it, that's something, I mean, that's, predominant this year because it's the 50th anniversary but I've listened to that quite a lot because I've done a couple of radio shows yes. about the album yeah. so that that one for me at the moment is top of my list but tomorrow it could be something else <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever mood takes you they have yeah, got something exactly. for it fantastic yeah. okay well before we wrap up um, how can people find you and um, how can they inquire about the fan club if they wanted uh, we have a website, uh, www.britishbeatlesfanclub.co.uk, um, and if there's different tabs across the top, if you just click the uh, inquiries tab or the membership tab, um, there's a drop-down email if you want to contact us, but all the information about joining or subscribing or buying any of our back issues uh, and special tribute magazines on John and George is all on the website. Fantastic. Excellent. Ernie, that's been fantastic. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. While talking to Ernie was great, 
and I learned a lot about the history of the Beatles, I still felt something was missing from why the fans loved the Beatles. So, I bit the bullet, I was a brave, brave boy, and I turned to my father-in-law, Roy Brower, who's been a Beatles fan since he was a boy in the 60s. Um, we sat down the other day uh, and had a bit of a chat. Roy, thank you for taking the time to, um, to do the interview. Um, so we're going to talk about you and the Beatles and how the part they've taken in your life uh, and some of your music um, and if they've influenced it and, and you know how that sort of uh, come about. So really, what was your experience of the Beatles and uh, what was it like to have them appear in your life as a uh, as a boy, really, I suppose? Um, quite exciting, really. And the, the excitement gathered pace as I got older and became uh, more... Uh, knowledgeable of the Beatles and more knowledgeable of music as well. Uh, I guess my first experience with the Beatles was in uh, late primary school where they came on the scene about 1963. Um, probably the first record that uh, had an impact was She Loves You. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, you have an interest then in um, what went before that, so some of their earlier stuff, which wasn't weren't necessarily written by Lennon and McCartney, mm. but from She Loves You onwards, um, I followed the Beatles um, as, as well as I could, really, in those days. The problem with the early 60s, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, music was rationed uh, mm. somewhat to uh, listening for a record on the uh, radio. Um, it was the era before pop stations mm. uh, launched uh, officially with the BBC Radio 1 in 1967. Didn't really have access to the uh, the pirates at an early age. I was going to ask about this. Those came a bit later on, did they, than the yes. pirate stations? Yeah, but um, they, they were there from probably 64, 65. But uh, because of my age, I didn't really have my own radio mm. or the ability to, to track them. So really, I, I, I followed the Beatles as well as I could. Um and uh, reading in magazines and newspapers as much about them as individuals as well. And I remember the day I was able to go to school, primary school, and uh, quote all their names off by heart, uh, which was a, quite a proud moment. So really, so there was a, there was a playground following them when they when they came about them. Was it? A... Yes, there was. And they, even in those days, there was a, a demarcation in the school between. Uh, those people who follow the Beatles and those who like the Rolling Stones, even so, at primary school. So even early on, then there was yes. a division in the thing. So how what, so how did the Beatles stand out to you then? So um, well, Beatles by far uh, more structured music, um, more polished, mm. um, even by the standards of nineteen sixty three, which were the, before the age of digital and multi track, mm. they were still better produced and more polished. Um, by design, because the Stones uh, focused on blues, which is uh, a more raw format. Mm. But um, I was I was impressed by uh, the the structure of Beatles songs. So technically, they, were they were they more um, proficient? Were they, sort of, was it, was it, were they better musicians, or was it just the... they, they they came across as better musicians, probably because their music was uh, better constructed. Um, but that's not necessarily true. The, the Rolling Stones are talented musicians, mm -hmm. but a different uh, genre, really. Okay. Uh, more blues, R and B. Yeah. So tends, it, yeah. Tends to be delivered in a less polished um, way. I should say more raw. Yes. It's got yeah. Yeah. So enough. not necessarily worse musicians for that, but it's just different. So really, so you you know they they stood out to you. They came about sort of like I say early sixties, 
um, 63, I think, is like I say, is their breakout year. They had a very specific, um, I suppose, like tone and, and, and sort of like I say, they, they, could, they were pop, they were very good, specific look. Instantly recognisable on the radio. Yes. Um, I, if I walked into a room and heard a Beatles record, I knew it was a Beatles record. Mm. Didn't have to wait till the end of the track to be told. Yes. So, uh, and um, within a couple of years, I could tell who was singing on the record as well. So I developed uh, uh, recognition of individual voices, McCartney, Lennon, mm. uh, predominantly uh, Lennon and McCartney in those days, and later George Harrison and Ringo yeah. Starr. So that's sort of like that starting point for them, that, that sort of, like I say, the polished sound, which was very, um, you know, I think what really got them off the ground. Their evolution then, so when they actually, you know, they start to evolve and they sort of, they take on the more psychedelic tapes, trains, did you enjoy that? Was it interesting at the time or was it um, something different? Different. Um, I wouldn't call myself innovative or um, uh, uh, at the vanguard of music. Mm. Um, I always found a change to a musical style a little bit challenging first. And then later I became comfortable with that and realised that uh, this this is a, uh, a relevant progression that somebody's made and it's good and uh, they will move on. Mm. Um, but as an individual, I'm not an um, avant-garde type person. Yeah. I tend to uh, digest it first then decide whether I like it. But with the Beatles, um, it was always a case of, yes, their next... Uh, their next uh, project or style was good i found mm. it good and uh exciting although it took a few Listen. listenings before i uh, realized that actually because i will say because i think like we were discussing before the recording i've i've heard beatles songs i don't think i've ever really sat through an album which is which was you know so having you can get in preparation for doing all these recordings i sat through a couple of albums and hearing them do an album is a different experience to listening to a Beatles song because it's within context of what they're doing at that time which I find a lot more interesting actually yes so listening to um, you know so if you listen to like Sgt Pepper as a whole as opposed to just listening to one of their songs it sort of becomes in the context of their evolution like you say which I can sort of completely and then listen to them in order like, uh, the White Album and listening I can see why, because they're so different at times. Yes. Um, one of the fears the Beatles always had was that their new record or their new album would be accepted by the um, by the, their fans mm. and, and the musical establishment because they were always breaking new ground, pushing the frontiers. And um, obviously, that's what I alluded to before. As a listener to that music, it took me a few... Uh, reviews or listens mm. to a new record before I actually accepted that this was the new Beatles yeah. and it just moved on and uh, you never knew what was coming next. Yeah, I think it was quite, quite exciting. I, I, I always enjoyed what came next. Mm. It was just, uh, I think one of the most, um, or the best example of that was probably first listening to Strawberry Fields, mm. which was quite um, almost psychedelic in some, some aspects uh, and the use of sound uh, to to create um, to create the, uh, the the ambience for the record, um, that is a classic. But at the time, I needed to listen to it a little bit before I decided mm. it was it was good. Yeah. Whereas the other side of that record, Penny Lane, was a little bit more 
traditional Beatles, instantly recognisable, instantly likeable. Yeah. The uh, avant-garde stuff, such as um, Strawberry Fields, took a little bit longer. Mm. Looking back, though, um, they're all classics. Yeah, the entire catalogue is... Everything I listened to, even like I say, it's just a variety, there was... And I haven't really been exposed massively to the Beatles myself, other than the odd song, you know, as you know. There's nothing bad. Even the songs I don't know, like their B-sides, or even their sort of less, more obscure, there was no song I ever thought was, I'm not a big fan of this. They're all like, oh, no, I, can, I can happily listen to all of it. Yes. Um, one of the other things I found, though, is listening to uh, the albums and the different things. At the time, I was, like I said, they would have been innovative and that sort of thing. Coming at it sort of so many years later... It was interesting to see that it, it felt less innovative, but only because of all the influenced bands I've heard since, everything from the Brit Pops and that. So, from your point of view, can you see their legacy as you've you know as you've grown up? That can you see their legacy and their influence on other strongly in other bands? Absolutely, yes. Um, to the point where the Beatles covered such a wide variety of styles in their music during their short period. Mm. Um, they they virtually um, precluded a lot of new stuff coming through because a lot of it was considered well this has been done before uh, and not just probably the Beatles but uh, the, the whole of the first generation of 60s early 60s uh, musicians probably uh, laid the footprint for probably 95% of pop that's come through since uh, yeah, I think I think it'd be quite easy to almost trace, uh, you know, pretty much any band you could trace their influences back, and like you say, I think a majority of them would probably end up yes. at the Beatles or the Stones in some sort of capacity. It's it's uh, yes, it is. It, I just couldn't. I couldn't. Like you say, I couldn't separate them from their legacy, in a way. Um, you know, listen to them. I could hear Oasis. I could hear Pulp. I could hear all these like, '90s Britpop bands. Yes, more directly. But then I could also hear other psychedelic bands and other bands, everything from, like you say, everything from that other period that I know as a, as a pop band. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I do think, like I said, their legacy is, is massive. Um, so, having that influence, did they influence you in your musical styles? Because, you know, obviously you're a musician yourself, you play multiple instruments. Did they influence you or were you...? Not, not directly, if I'm honest. Um, I probably uh, absorbed a lot of the, the musical uh, phrasing of the Beatles. Um, I developed in the mid-60s, uh, or towards the, uh, towards the end of the 60s, uh, an interest in specifically singer-songwriters. Mm. Uh, Bob Dylan, for instance, mm. uh, Paul Simon, um, people like James Taylor, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, uh, various others. And I developed... Um, um, the, my guitar playing along those lines so it wasn't pop orientated mm. uh, it tended to be influenced by people like that more than anything um, however I, I still uh, listened uh, intently to, to Beatles records and uh, in fact I found um, years later listening to particular tracks by other people how much they've been influenced by the Beatles themselves. Mm. So I wouldn't say I've been influenced, but I can, I can give you a number of examples um, where, say, somebody like Paul Simon, I believe, has been influenced by the Beatles yeah. 
during his formative years and in some of the songs he's developed. Mm. Um, no, sorry, there must, there must be that period of time must have been almost inescapable to yes. not to not see them as the sort of the granddaddies of it all, really. Yes, I, I, I a few examples I could give would be the the end to uh, the boxer, which the the chorus of Lila Lai uh, was less than twelve months after the release of uh, Hey Jude, which mm. had a similar, very extended, repetitive phase out to the record. Uh, okay. And I could cite a few other examples of uh, that type of thing being uh, mm. carried so over. So their influences were just popping up. Yes. Not consistently, but you'd, you could hear them in specific songs and that sort of thing. Yes, and another example I could give is uh, a track called Save the Life of My Child by Paul Simon, who introduced uh, one of his older songs, Overplayed, on the new record, um, which again is something the Beatles used uh, in um, All You Need Is Love, mm. where they start singing She Loves You at the end of the uh, yes. record, that type of thing. So um, the more you listen to records, the more you realise that maybe that artist has been influenced by that other artist. You can see the traces before. in things. Yes. Yeah. Um, whether it's intentional or sublime, I don't know, but it uh, that's how I've interpreted it mm. uh, over the years. Yeah. I suppose, they like say, it could be anything from... Each band is like you say it could be a member of the band's listened to it and decided they want to go with it, or yes. even the producer's gone. I mean, I really like that sound. We'll try and see if it works for, yes. for that song, singer songwriter. I mean, the, the examples I've just given you are subtle. Mm. Um, the the blatant um, uh, adoption of the Beatles style has got to be um, Oasis. I think oh, yes. some of their <coughs> um, uh, phrasing, musical phrasing, and mechanisms they use are picked directly from uh, from Beatles tracks. Yes. Oh, yeah, no. No no uh, no question about it. Yeah, and I think there are sort of we'll say listening to some of the albums, I could almost place I almost could put an album an Oasis album. Yes. Like you know, follow on and they could probably blend in many different ways. Yes. Um I mean, an example of uh, there's the uh, track on Sgt Pepper called Being for the Benefit of Mr Kite mm. where it comes to an abrupt end and then proceeds to the next verse. And uh, if you listen to an Oasis record recently, uh, the name escapes me, they use exactly the same mechanism in that record. Yeah, I, it's an interesting sort of thing, because I've listened to it digitally. I, I checked my phone to yes. see if it would stop. It just, it just stopped, and I was a bit like, oh, it's, it's, I've pressed something. So um, I, I think I have seen those those sort of like techniques and stuff do crop up again and again. And I think even... Um, I could even like you say when you quote those sorts of things, I can I can in my head my sort of style of music I, I can ma imagine um, those influences on like, Iron Maiden yes. uh, and even early like not early sorry later Metallica, um, where they've tried to become more like less heavy and they've tried to become more melodic and stuff and there's there are certain trappings of things of like say the overplay or the abrupt end or different things that clearly go back to yes you know uh, ex experimental uh, Beatles tracks yes. Um, so from all the, the stuff they created then, do you have a favourite album or song that you go back to? or? Um, I guess favourite album is probably uh, Sgt Pepper. It's the first um, album, as I understand, as a concept album, where there is some link between uh, previous tracks, subsequent tracks. Mm. Uh Yes, it's it's just a, a complete uh, work of art, really. 
Uh, much has been said about its front piece, the uh, the, the Peter Blake um, uh, front cover, but um, I think the music itself, uh, without that, stands out uh, way above anything else of the period. I'd have to agree. I think of all the albums I listened to, that's the one I went back to the most. Yes. I enjoyed it end to end, and it, it worked as a as a as a whole. Yes. Um, I find it interesting. I don't know what your thoughts were, but because it opens with the hope you enjoy the show, you know, and then, yes. and then there's the hope you enjoyed the show, and then it's followed by almost like um, I forget the name of the track now. But, oh. Help for my friends. Help for my friends. Yes. Um, it's almost like an encore, and it, it feels a bit like you are listening to. A, a live show yes like they've completed it and then they've gone they've gone back and, and they've come out and done the final song yes but the, the the tempo and the tone or the um the mood of the final song um um a day in the life yes so it's very different to this album it seems a bit more somber i don't know if it's a lennon lennon song or a kite song or it's it's very it's, that's i think that's why i like the album so much um it's um it's a lennon song a day in the life but with a middle eight from Paul McCartney, mm. I believe, um, who who does the bus scene. Um, I went upstairs, had a smoke. Yes. Uh, and then there's that period psychedelic uh, episode. Mm. Uh, so it's it's a good mix of uh, two different styles blended beautifully into one song. Yes. I, I, I there's there two songs I'm going to refer to it again. There were two songs um, on the album that really stood out to me, and that was one of them. A Day in the Life is one of those I've listened to but is um, I think it's actually um, oh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Yes, um, is a fantastic song. I really enjoyed it. Um, now I'm not sure whether it, I, it sounds like that was a Lennon John Lennon song, mm. um, and it's it's typified by uh, I think something new at the time was. You were always surprised by the words Lennon chose to rhyme with other words. Mm. They weren't the obvious. They are not the obvious choice. No. What made it so uh, vital and uh, exciting? It, yeah, no, I agree. I think the lyrics in it, because um, I, mean, I listened to it all through, and when I went back, it's that thing that if I did, you started listening to the lyrics, and and in my head, I'm like, is this nonsense or is there is there sense in it? And the more you listen to it, there is. It's just it's just very well chosen. Yes. Very well structured. Um, as a lyricist, he he really was very clever. I yes. Sort of, okay. That, so, that was probably one of the good examples of the avant-garde style of, of the Beatles. Mm. At that time, it stood out a mile. Ten years later, it would have been part of the norm. Yes. And that's how far ahead they were. Yeah. No, that's a really good point, actually. Like I say, it's still bands. There's a, actually listen to this album. There's a song from the seventies called Blockbuster. Yes. That kept springing to mind, and I can't remember who who um, wrote it or performed it, but uh, it's a very seventies song. But it it kept feeling like that song was so, Sergeant Pepper in that thing of like throughout the song it changes tone, it does this, yes. it's got this, and it just sort of like you say I think it came out in seventy, seventy three, seventy four, um, but clearly like you say they were so far ahead of their time that something that became the norm later is is. You know, you go back and think, "Oh wow, this this, this album was released in, like you say, in seventy three, seventy four. Um, it would have probably been lost in the mix a little bit, I suppose. Yes. Okay, so if if there was someone coming up to you know to um, experience the Beatles now, where would you where would you advise them to start? You mean uh, regarding their music? 
Uh, in general, really, actually. Um, I would say, like most groups, I'd say start at the beginning mm. and then work your way through to the end. Um, the, the thing with a lot of artists in the 60s where I um, suddenly discovered them was they had a back catalogue and going back is is interesting but um, I think it's, it's good to actually start to listen to people and as early as possible and see how they develop mm. Mm. Uh, because um, that way you can probably just plot their progress in terms of uh, how, how they move how they move their of uh, the craft on experience their evolution with them sort yes of yeah brilliant thank you very much okay excellent right. thank you and there you have it as a good friend of mine says so we've covered off the history of the Beatles and we've got some insight from fans I found this investigation and this research fascinating and uh, it really has opened up a different musical world for me i have gone back and listened to a lot of the beatles albums now so and i would recommend anyone who's ever thought i don't know or it's too retro it's too old seriously give it a go there is definitely something in their catalogue you were going to enjoy it covers so many different things um let me know what you thought of the albums if you do try them um please contact me uh, at 20th century geek at gmail.com uh, find me on twitter at 20th century geek uh, on Facebook, the same way, um, and I'm now on Instagram as well, under 20th Century Geek. Um, hope you enjoy the show, and uh, you know, come back for next time when we we're going to look into the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Thanks very much. <laughs>